Our reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning to read at verse 1. And this can be found on page 968 of the Church Bibles. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the weakness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ's, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond our limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God has assigned to us, to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labour of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you, without boasting of work already done in another er another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Wendy, thank you so much for reading for us so well. Uh, it's good to be back in 2 Corinthians in the evenings. And we're going to be uh, looking at this whole chapter together and then continuing the series through all the way to the end of the book um, over these next few weeks. Um, as we begin, two things that will help you. One, on the back of the service sheet, there's just a, just a, a very kind of brief outline of where we're going. Um, but the thing that will very much help you uh, the most is to have the Bible open uh, so you can see what the text says as we work our way uh, through it. Well, let's pray as we come to the Lord's words.
Our Father, we thank you that even as we hear your word read, you are already speaking to us. And Lord, we pray, therefore, that you would open our ears and our hearts, that we would hear your words, that we would understand it, that we would be glad to receive it, and that we would then obey it. For your glory's sake. Amen. Now, the church at Corinth, it seemed to be a great success. Many people had come to faith in Christ and were growing in their faith. They were keen on evangelism. They were reaching out to their city. It was a church full of intelligent and gifted people who were serving God with lots of enthusiasm. If you visited on a Sunday, you'd doubtless be impressed. But it was a church under threat as well. And the threat was coming from a bunch of people ironically called super apostles. These guys uh, were what you might call absolute lads. They were impressive, they were gifted, they were powerful people. They had lots of followers, they had celebrity endorsements, they had positions of influence in the culture. And so they presented a version of Christianity that seemed very appealing a kind of glitzy, glamorous, spiritually powerful, culturally popular Christianity. Follow them, support their kind of ministry, and you too can be the kind of Christian who gains everything that you want in life. Everybody will love you, and you won't have to worry about any of that persecution stuff. Sounds very appealing. Now, as these guys have emerged in Corinth... They've been rubbishing the Apostle Paul. Poor, suffering, unimpressive, weak Paul. Too simple in his teaching, too serious about sin, too harsh in his calls for repentance. Time to leave Paul behind, they say. Come follow us on a more glorious path. And some of the Corinthians, they've not been very discerning and they've been buying into this. The problem is that it's all fake. It's not genuine Christianity at all. It will draw them away, we'll discover in the next chapter, it will draw them away to a different Jesus, with a different spirit, and into a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. This is a clear and present danger. And the Apostle Paul, he's seen this threat to his church, the church that he planted, the church that he loves, And so he writes this letter. Let me remind you of what we've seen throughout the letter. In chapters 1 to 7, that's the first section. It's really three sections, 2 Corinthians. 1 to 7, 8 to 9, and then 10 to the end. In chapters 1 to 7, Paul writes to remind the Christians about the nature of authentic Christian ministry. That the true apostolic ministry, this is the phrase we've been using, is simple, Bible-explaining, Jesus-proclaiming ministry. Simple, Bible-explaining, Jesus-proclaiming ministry. It's the ministry of the Word, it's done in the power of the Spirit, and it's done in a life of suffering. It looks very weak, but it is what reveals the glory of Christ And it is the only thing that can reconcile men and women to God. 
That's chapters 1 to 7. That's what he's been saying. And it ended in chapter 7. Paul really encouraged that this church seemed to be, on the whole, repentant, turning away from the false apostles and coming back to Paul and his apostolic gospel. Then in chapter 8 to 9, which we've looked at in the morning services over the last few weeks, Paul makes an appeal. He makes his appeal to this repentant majority who are coming back to him, and he makes a specific application to their wallets. He appeals to them to financially support churches that are doing this kind of authentic Christian ministry, but of who are in great material need. He says, look, don't abandon weak-looking churches like the one in Jerusalem, but instead remember the grace of Christ to you and excel in the grace of giving to others. Be cheerfully generous. Support authentic Christian ministry. Don't let what the super apostles teach about success and, and glory and power, don't let that put you off supporting churches that look pretty weak. And again, at the end of chapter 9, Paul's very positive that the majority of the church will heed what he's saying and will respond uh, to his appeal. Chapters 8 to 9. So that's what we've seen. Now we get into chapter 10. We hit this final section, or rather, this section hits us because the changing tone is quite marked, isn't it? So warm and cuddly at the end of chapter 9. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Yet chapter 10 starts to become more punchy, doesn't it? And actually, just wait till next week, chapter 11, when the sparks really start to fly. Why is the tone changed so much? Well, it seems that where the majority in Corinth have repented and are warming up to Paul again, there still seems to be a significant minority in the church who are being taken in by the super-apostles. And Paul loves these people. He's not prepared to just let them go. And so in the final chapters, he deals head-on with the accusations against him. Wake up to the danger before it's too late. So that's what's been going on. Now let's turn to our passage. We're going to just split it in two, but we're going to spend, this is a warning for you, we're going to spend most of the time in verses 1 to 11 and just a short bit of time in chapters in verse 12 to 18. So if we get to the, the end of 11, you think, well, he's still going on about this point. Uh, don't worry, the second one's much shorter. Verse 1 to 11 then. What we see here is the power of gentle Christian ministry. Verse 1. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ... I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. The accusation made by the super apostles against Paul is there in verse 1. It is that he is humble when they're in person, but bold when he's somewhere else. That's just to be clear there, the word humble is not the normal Christian sense of godly humility. It's used as a pejorative, as an insult. In fact, if you just look down to verse 11, you can see the exact wording of the accusation against Paul. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. 
and his speech of no accounts. See, Paul, it seems, doesn't have rock-hard abs or bulging biceps or a chiseled jaw. He's meek and pathetic-looking in person and he's timid in his demeanour. Some of us can relate to that. It seems, too, from verse 11, that he doesn't have the speaking skill of the great orators in Corinth, the people who crack people up with their gags and who bring the crowd to tears with their stirring emotional speeches. He's just ordinary when it comes to his sermons. On the other hand, it seems that when he writes his letters, well, he sounds much more confident and he's much more direct. He's only bold when he's away from you, they say. What a cowardly way to act is the implication. They're trying to put distance between the church and Paul, and therefore Paul's gospel, the true gospel. Of course, Paul needs to address this, and he does so in an interesting way. He begins by speaking of the character of Jesus. Did you notice that? I, Paul, myself entreat you, appeal to you, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He makes his appeal to them by reminding them what Jesus is like. And he's using phrases there that uh, Jesus used of himself in Matthew chapter 11. This is what it says. Come to me, Jesus said, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And Jesus was like that, wasn't he? He welcomed the little children. He cared for the sick. He forgave and assured those who were weighed down by sin, the the tax collectors and prostitutes. He took pity on those suffering terribly from demonic oppression He took people's burdens. He was meek. He was gentle. He didn't use his evident power and authority to promote himself, but he graciously served others. And you think about it, what could look weaker than a man hanging naked on a cross? What could be more humble, more humiliated before the eyes of everyone? See, Paul here, he's turning the accusation against him on his head, isn't he? They call Paul humble in a a negative sense. And he says, look, that's no insult. Our saviour was meek and gentle too. Indeed, he was humiliated. He was weak in the eyes of others. I'm glad to be as he was. And I appeal to you with that in mind. But at the same time, wouldn't it be a huge mistake to see Jesus' gentleness as an absence of authority and power? See, when Jesus saw his people abused by others or led astray by false teaching of others, well, his authority and power came firmly into view, didn't it? Just think of uh, the woes that he calls down upon the Pharisees or the turning over of the tables in the temple. Don't mistake his gentleness for powerlessness. Threaten the people of Jesus, and you risk being on the receiving end. And just so his apostle. 
Don't think that just because he's so physically unimpressive and because he's gentle, that he does not carry the power and authority of God. He does. Not in himself, but because Jesus has appointed him as his apostle and because he proclaims Jesus' word in the power of the Spirit. See, he's gently taught people the gospel from the Bible and that is the power of God both to build up God's people and take down God's enemies. See, if his opponents do not repent and if the church in Corinth joins his opponents, well then Christ's apostle will have to use that authority more boldly when he comes in person, even though he's reluctant to do so. See where he goes in verse 2. So I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. He doesn't want to, but he will. Now, uh, here I have a book. Uh, It's called The Art of Biblical Narrative by Robert Alter. I'm not sure if you can see it that clearly at the back, but there you go. Uh, What I want you to notice is the cover. It is the worst book cover I've ever seen. Uh, The colour scheme is rubbish, uh, sort of black, red, and that's a kind of mauve in the main text. Um, You can't really read it properly. There are no pictures apart from this indistinguishable squiggle here, which looks a bit like a fire, but I'm not really sure um, what that is. It's got three different fonts in different sizes. And best of all, they actually have to hyphenate the word narrative because it's too big to fit uh, on the front. If you judge this book by its cover, you'd never read it. You think there's no point, that's clearly got nothing of value in it. That cover's rubbish, and so must the book be. But you'd be wrong. The truth is, the book's excellent. And if I wanted you to, to, if you asked me, how do I understand Old Testament Bible stories, uh, this would be the book that I'd recommend. It's gold dust. It would be a huge mistake to judge it by its outward appearance and not what's in its heart. The phrase, don't judge a book by its cover, uh, is entirely appropriate. The super apostles have judged Paul by his cover. They accuse Paul of walking according to the flesh. That is, they look at Paul and they think, look, his ministry, it lacks the signs of the Spirit's power and presence. They assume that a real spiritual Christian minister, well, he'd be impressive looking. He'd be sort of bold and aggressive, a kind of big man, if you like. Someone who wows people with his spectacular displays of miraculous power and his high-octane speeches. But Paul's not like that. He's glad to be uh, not like that. He's gentle and he's meek and he's humble, just like his saviour. See, they assume that that means that he's not doing God's work in God's way. They take that to mean that he's worldly and he's kind of lacking in spiritual power. Now, Paul thinks that they're actually right about one thing. Indeed, he says, we do walk in the flesh, verse 3. That is, we do live in the weakness of the flesh. We, we have earthly bodies, 
that are weak, we're lacking, we are lacking in impressiveness, and we are sinners too. You're right about that. But here's where you're wrong. You are wrong that the cover of our human weakness means that we're spiritually powerless. God has not left us powerless, says Paul. In fact, he has equipped us for war. Verse 3 to 6. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take, thought, take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. These are interesting verses, aren't they? He's illustrating his point by talking about siege warfare. Talk of weapons and strongholds destroying and taking captives and punishment. So it's a bit like this. Um, Paul has, has founded the church in Corinth, but then Paul has left the city. He's gone elsewhere. And now these super apostles, they've turned up and they've been, spiritually speaking, building walls. They've been building these great walls between the Corinthians and Paul to try and keep them apart. It's becoming a kind of fortress, and its siege towers and its battlements look pretty scary. They're beginning to look more and more powerful, and Paul looks pretty powerless in response. Paul is weak, but he's not powerless. He's been given weapons of divine power to destroy such strongholds. Now, they're not swords or AK-47s or Molotov cocktails. He's no crusading knight or jihadi warrior. He's actually already told us in the letter what these weapons are. It's in chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 6 and 7. He says there that he goes about his ministry by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. It is the word of God faithfully taught in love with the power of the Spirit. Those are the weapons that he uses for what he calls his ministry of righteousness in chapter 3. Those are the weapons he has, the word of God in the power of the Spirit, But notice that Paul uses them not to destroy the people themselves. But verse 5, the arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. In other words, the the apostolic ministry of Paul, the the simple Bible-explaining, Jesus-proclaiming ministry It looks weak and gentle, and so do its servants, but it's where the power is. It will prevail against the might of its opponents in the end. So Paul's not afraid of his opponents. And he will come and he will challenge them by preaching God's word. He says so in verse 11. Let such a person understand 
that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Wake up, Corinthians, says Paul. Don't be deceived by these others. Return in obedience to the gospel now so that when I come with the authority of Jesus as his apostle, you're not found to be in opposition to God's power. Now let me just try and apply these principles to us at the moment. What kind of ministry do you think has real power in this world? What do you believe has real power? Because there's a kind of aggressive, impressive Christianity out there in the world today that claims to be the real thing and claims the similar things to what the Corinthian super-apostles claims. Claims to produce wealthy and healthy and powerful, successful people. And it does so by hooking up to the culture's values. It's that of impressive shows of wealth in church buildings, kind of gold and marble everywhere. Or that of well-crafted performances in worship services, sort of glittering and glamorous people on stage performing to huge congregations. Or you can find ministers who have more in common with game show hosts, with their glittering white teeth and their expensive suits, who promise the winnings to you too. Or perhaps there are other forms as well. There's a kind of conservative version. It has ultra-aggressive preachers who are ranting and railing against the culture's wokeness. And there's a liberal version too, with smooth preachers who ridicule those stuck in the past with their old-fashioned church doctrines and their lack of appeal to modern people. Get with the culture, they say. They're all still out there today, if you want it. And they look impressive. It looks powerful. It appears that it could work in our culture. It's appealing to us. Now here's where I'd like you to listen really carefully, because this is where it bites for us. See, preachers such as these guys in Corinth, they exploited the communications methods and the technologies of their age for maximum impact. Let me say that again. They exploit the communication methods and technologies of their age for maximum impact. And that's still true today. They'll have makeup artists and image consultants. They'll use all kinds of video footage and smoke machines and comedy routines in their church services. They'll have YouTube channels and Twitter feeds and TikTok accounts and podcasts and blogs and all the rest. That's not to say that those things are bad in themselves. I'm saying that as someone who's currently on YouTube. (laughs) I'm not sure about the makeup artist bit, though. But those those things aren't all wrong. But when we see that as an approach, we should just have a little flag pop up in our minds. Because when you see that, it may well be that they use that stuff because they have lost their trust that the real power is in the ordinary, simple Bible teaching ministry. 
Do you see why? See, if the Bible isn't powerful itself to win people to Christ or to change people, well, then what you have to do is you have to give the Bible power. You have to employ all those other means. And that may be effective on a superficial level. It may win many followers and it might win you much praise, but it will not change the hearts and it moves away from the gospel in the end. It's all cover and no contents. Now we need to realise this because this is going to be just as appealing for us in our day as the equivalent was to the Corinthians in their day. Don't be deceived by it, says Paul. 2 Corinthians teaches us that gospel ministry, real gospel ministry, is done by ordinary, gentle and humble people. They look weak and insignificant, but by God's grace, as they faithfully teach the simple apostolic gospel from the Bible, well, they wield weapons with divine power. They can destroy what is false, but appears to be so strong. And the Christian minister who teaches the Bible can protect that which threatens at the church. Protect from that which threatens the church. But second, they can also do what they really want to do, and that is to build up the church in faith. This is in verse 8. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. That verse actually brackets uh, this whole section. At the end of chapter 13, you see it said again. Paul deals with this threat, and he deals so strongly with this threat because what he really wants to do is build up the church. It's a necessary thing so that he can come and build them up by teaching them and encouraging them in their faith. And even more, verse 15 that in building them up, the gospel work that, that's begun in them might actually be multiplied to distant lands where the gospel's never been heard. That's why he's writing. He's going to come and visit them again, but he doesn't want to come in discipline. He wants to come as he's come before, to build them up so that they're strong in Christ and so that the gospel work is multiplied. So there's the comparison. On the one hand, you have these false apostles. They're slick, brilliant speakers, powerful, impressive-looking now, but in the end, the strongholds they build will be torn down by the gospel. And on the other hand, here's the true apostle and those who hold to and follow his kind of authentic ministry, and they look weak and gentle and humble and unimpressive now, just like Jesus did. But they're the ones who have the real power because they teach the simple gospel that's in the word of God. And they're involved in building something that won't be destroyed, but which will last the church of Jesus Christ. The power of gentle Christian ministry destroys strongholds and builds up the church. I promise you that the second point is a lot shorter than it is. So let's turn there. Very briefly, verse 12 to 18, the right kind of boasting in Christian ministry. Now just a quick scan over verses 12 
to 18, just a cursory glance, it will tell you that these verses are just all about boasting. It's there in almost every verse. And instinctively, um, as I do, I'm sure most of you will be the same, you might be just be thinking, well, boasting's bad, isn't it? You know, it's a sin. It shows arrogance. It shows pride. And why is Paul boasting? Well, the Bible teaches that boasting is not necessarily sinful. It depends, basically, what you're boasting in. So if you're boasting in yourself, that's a bad idea. But if you're boasting in the Lord, well, that's something else. That's the key distinction. What are you boasting in? Paul's opponents, they boast in themselves. Let me read verse 12. Verse 12 is said, I think, with some sarcasm. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. See, they commend themselves. Their boasting is in themselves. They, they think they're the business, the cat's whiskers, the bee's knees. They aren't afraid to tell anyone else about that too. They measure themselves by human measure, says Paul. They compare themselves with each other and they come to the conclusion well, that they're top of the pops. More than that, as you read on in uh, chapters, uh, verse 13 to 16, you discover that they boast of things that they have no right to boast of. That's what Paul's referring to there. They boast of their profound influence on the church in Corinth, how they've done such a wonderful job there. They claim the credit that for all that's good in the church. But Paul says they're without understanding. And Paul and the other apostles and his team with them, they will never be so bold as to, to do such a thing. Paul's boasting is not boasting of, of gospel work that he didn't do in areas that he'd never been to. He won't claim authority over a church that he didn't plant or grow. He won't overreach and disrupt a church that's nothing to do with him. They do that, but he won't. In fact, his boasting is not at all in his achievements. He will not take credit for anything because he knows that ultimately it is not his work at all, but the Lord's. Key principles in verse 17 and 18. Verse 17, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's a quote from Jeremiah chapter 9. It's a quote he's used before. He used it in in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And there he used it in a slightly different way. He used it there to say that we can't boast in anything in our salvation, as if we've contributed something, that it's all down to the Lord and to his cross. And here he uses it slightly differently to prevent boasting in our gospel ministry. Because that too is ultimately all of the Lord. See, of that he will gladly boast that all that has been achieved has been achieved by and through Christ. That makes self-commendation just utterly pointless. Verse 18, for it is not the one who commends himself who's approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. We've reached the end of our time. Let me sum up. 
The power is in gentle Christian ministry. Gently and faithfully explain the good news about Jesus from the Bible. Do that in simple, understandable words. And God's divine power is unleashed to tear down strongholds of false belief and to build up the church. It's a remarkable thing. The question is, do we really believe that? Do you believe that when you open up the Bible with someone else, that that's what's happening? God's power is being shown. Now, Paul would have us to be discerning when we hear and see other kinds of ministry out there. That's the main reason, I think, that he's writing this. He wants them to be switched on, that there are other things out there which claim to be Christian work and claim to have power, but which are not Christ's. Let's be discerning when we see and hear of other kinds of ministry, particularly ones that seem far more impressive. And let's embrace this kind of ministry here at Chalmers. It's the gospel ministry of divine power that will grow the church here and it will grow the church in places that the gospel has not yet gone. Perhaps surprisingly, it is something to boast about. Not boasting about an arrogant, with an arrogant pride, a sense of we've done this and how powerful are we. Not boasting in ourselves because the work's done by us, but boasting in the Lord because the work and the results, the power, are all his as he speaks through his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the wisdom of your word. We pray that you would help us to be discerning people, that we would be discerning when it comes to seeing what real, authentic ministry is, that we'd spot what's false from what's true. Give us confidence, we pray, in the power of your word, that as your word is spoken and explained, as we point people to the Lord Jesus, that your divine power is at work, that both breaks down false belief and wins people to the truth. Oh God, our Father, we pray too, just as we've finished there, and there's all this language of boasting, we pray, Lord God, save us from ourselves. Help us never to boast in our own achievements or our own power or work, but only ever to boast in the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.